Nonprofits are on topic with IU. I'm Kenny Smith with the Media School at Indiana University Bloomington. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Jamie Levine Daniel, who is a professor in the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IUPUI. Thanks for joining us today, Jamie. Thank you for having me. Let's paint with some incredibly broad brushes here, Doctor. <laughs> the economy is struggling, and often what happens uh, in that scenario, not-for-profit agencies feel that pain, too, and sometimes quite severely. Are we seeing that right now? Absolutely. Um, one of the interesting things, too, is that um, nonprofits, and we should say nonprofits broadly um, provide public goods and services, right? They are your organizations that feed hungry people, that help provide medical care in places that don't have it, that provide educational programs. Um, and they also do other things. They're your art museums and your theaters and your animal rescues and all of that. So nonprofits as a whole is very broad. But even just at that super broad level, um, we see decreasing revenues, right? So people are donating less. State and local funding sources are drying up at an increasing rate, than, more so than they were even before um, the pandemic. While there's this twin pressure of, especially for those health and human services and sort of public need um, programs, they're facing increasing and often sort of record-breaking demand for their programs. So a lot of times you're seeing a lot of nonprofits being asked to do more than they ever have, and they're, they have to do it with less or in ways that they haven't been able to typically do it, especially with uh, the the COVID-19 pandemic challenges. I'm glad that you broke that down into different categories, at least a bit, because (laughs) that helps. Thank you for that. That helps with this next sweeping generalization. (laughs) Are there certain segments or groups that are holding up better than others or certain ones that are struggling more than others right now? Yes. For any of my students who may listen to this, the answer is always, it depends, right? Mm -hmm. but then I just, you have to be able to tell me why it depends. Um, so now I have to tell you why it depends. Seems fair. Um, you know, <laughs> same, same fair, exactly. So um, the, the immediate needs, the, the food providers, your, your food banks, um, homeless shelters, for example, how do you socially distance? How do you in, incorporate social distance measures into, say, a, a shelter? There's some attempts to be creative in, in some of those spaces, but there's some of those basic needs. Are, are dealing with incredible challenges, really high levels of demand, and again, fewer resources. Typically, in times of, of recession, you often see arts organizations and things like that um, take hits because if you think about Maslow's hierarchy, for example, right, the mm-hmm. basic pyramid of needs where people need food and shelter and warmth and to feel safe, and once they do that, they can sort of think about socializing and, and sort of be on the self, and you kind of go up, and then you can get to those actualizations needs, you know, there's a lot of focus on basic needs. Um, And if people can't get what they need for themselves, they're not going to be looking necessarily to to community needs or art or things like that. Um, And so you have those basic challenges. And and and, um, again, food banks and things like that that are definitely facing um, shortages and high demand. In this case, you also have medical um, entities, medical organizations. you have arts organizations, those that are able to sort of survive, have to figure out how they can do things online or in ways that don't involve bringing people into their doors because no one's going anywhere. You also have, um, because we can't also ignore the, the social unrest and the, the uh, issues around racism, right? So you have organizations that are facing unprecedented demands and also receiving unprecedented levels of support. For example, the Minnesota Freedom Fund that um, and other national and local bail organizations that work to free people who um, can't, pay, can't pay bail 
um, for any number of reasons, but especially those who may have been arrested in the protest, those have gotten a lot of notice in the news and had unprecedented levels of funding flowing their way. But that's actually a stress on the organization. If you have an organization that has a budget of $100,000 or $200,000 annually, all of a sudden having $30 million, they can't spend it fast enough. They can't. They might not have the staff on hand or the actual technical like capacity to physically process online donations or checks that may come in the mail, which they need to do for audit reasons and all sorts of things. It's not just you get the money in the bank and you can immediately spend it out. There's all sorts of back office things that need to happen. So there's, there's definitely what you might assume would be stressors um, in terms of resources drying up uh, and demand for basic needs, and also certain organizations having higher demand and higher levels of support without the administrative capacities to back it up. Abraham Maslow does not come up in enough interviews. That's my experience. <laughs> some organizations, so well, I mean, we thank you for that. Some organizations <laughs> are used to living on something like a shoestring budget, and you're, you're sort of yeah. uh, teasing at that already here. So yeah. you might look at this and say, well, uh, tough scenario, but status quo in a way. But if yours is not getting its typical donation stream, no matter which kind of category of not-for-profit you might operate, I think, is the word perilous the right word to use here? Perilous can be. And I think we also fall into a trap of thinking um, only about financial resources. When we think about mm -hmm. shoestring, shoestring budgets, uh, organizations operate on thin budgets because they rely heavily on volunteer labor. And that's actually something that we see um, in general. We see, you know, I think it was the last survey from, from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics said that 25% of all adults volunteer at least once throughout the year we see volunteer, usually see volunteer levels increase in times of, of recession because people who are not working or who are not getting a paycheck may decide to try to, um, for whatever reason, whether they want to broaden their own networks or they're just looking to make a difference in any way they can, they will go out and volunteer. Well, again, now we run up against the challenges of the pandemic and they can't because either they are not comfortable leaving the houses themselves, the organizations have been forced to change their operations or the organizations, whether they live in a state with, you know, stay-at-home orders in effect or not, have decided that they're not going to be relying on volunteers at this time. So when we talk about shoestring budget, we also have to think about the things that enable those structures and what puts those structures at risk now. At least in the early going, since you mentioned the volunteer networks that are involved sometimes here, there was this interesting mm -hmm. conundrum in terms of personnel power. Some local people-facing groups had to reduce their staffing or chose to out of health and safety concerns. And, and maybe mm -hmm. that's when they needed people on the front lines, mm -hmm. as it were, the most. Or perhaps exactly. perhaps I have additional free time, but I feel compelled to stay at home again for health and safety reasons. How are those things working out right now as we are in well into July? Those organizations that have been able to shift to online programming, I think may be better able to utilize uh, volunteers, maybe in ways that they usually hadn't, but again, they're delivering their services in ways they typically hadn't before. So if the volunteering doesn't um, include, you know, coming onto a site, um, if you can shift your volunteers to, hey, do this thing on Zoom or on this electronic platform, then you might still be able to rely on, on volunteer labor. Um, but if it's, you know, physically getting things to people like food, for example, um, you might just be relying on your staff even more. The challenge is, is that um, I believe in Indiana, 
something like 60 or 70% of nonprofit organizations have reduced their staff. This comes from um, the nonprofit um, Indiana uh, project that Kirsten Gronberg at uh, O'Neill Bloomington has. Um, and so she's got some really good data, she and her team, but they're all about nonprofit, the nonprofit sector project um, in Indiana. They did a survey uh, in April and May. So they have about 500 organizations, and th- those organizations were, uh, reported things between 16 and 70% reported program costs, cuts to staff, cuts to revenues, all of those things. Um, and so the mismatch between people who may have more time and organizations who have need, but the inability to actually use that time. Um, it's certainly challenging. So how can I capitalize that if I'm the volunteer coordinator, let's say, in my organization? How do I? I know there's people out there, they might want to do some good, <laughs> but I've got all these various uh, external factors. How do I deal with that? You know, I think that there are a couple of ways if you're looking, if you have volunteers, if you have ways for volunteers to volunteer in contactless manners, that would be great, whether that's online you know, I've seen, um, you know, voter registration drives and, and, and uh, politically oriented nonprofits, you know, talking about how they're retooling their, um, their um, election processes and plans, right? So instead of planning for door-to-door, you're planning on more electronic communication um, and, you know, phone calls and Zoom calls and, and or Skype or whatever, things like that. Um, so are you delivering your program in a way, whether it's electronic or it's non-contactless? I've also seen some local organizations and also not necessarily local to Indiana, but um, local to other places uh, where they were asking for people to help make deliveries and saying contactless, you know, we put the food in your trunk, you go to these places and and put it down and then someone else will come and collect it. So really trying to um, mitigate people's concerns while also still delivering um, on their programs and services. Because yeah, you don't want to lose the challenges like donations may dry up, financial donations dry up, but you also don't want your volunteers to not be willing to come or not trust the organization. Trust is really important in the nonprofit sector. Um, But you also don't want them to sort of lose interest or, you know, when things go back to a point where it's safe to go and volunteer on a regular basis, again, you want to be top of mind so that people will say, oh yeah, I can't wait to come back. Um, I will say the one sort of subsector uh, in the nonprofit sector that seems to be doing really well with volunteers are um, animal shelters. Lots of people willing to adopt and or at least foster cats and dogs. So people will go and, and pick up the animal and they figured out how to do that sort of as contactless as possible um, because people are home. So they have more time to take care of animals. So then from the personnel back to the money, from the personnel to the mm-hmm. purse strings, if mm-hmm. if those are being drawn tighter everywhere because of just the economy yep. right now, how does my nonprofit get better at or perhaps change up altogether its donor appeals? That's an evergreen question. <laughs> um, you know, in some ways, nonprofits are always striving to target their donor appeals, right? Whether there's a pandemic going on or they're facing or a recession and or a recession, I suppose. Um or, you know, just in general, trying to hone their resources. I think one thing that's really important, um, and again, my students or anyone who's heard me talk about nonprofits will laugh that I, that I bring this up, is that people typically don't understand what it costs to run a nonprofit. And I alluded to this when I talked about, you know, the Minnesota Freedom Fund and, and those organizations that are getting in massive, massive donations and the back office uh, resources that it takes to process those and to adequately see to those allocations. But there's been 
this idea that overhead is a dirty word in the nonprofit sector, at least according to donors. I want to pay for the program. I don't want to pay someone's salary. Or I want to pay for the food to get to somebody. I don't want to pay for a computer program or something like that. But you can't really separate the administrative costs and the salaries and the human capacity that it takes, the human resources that it takes to run an effective organization. So really understanding the true costs of a program um, is going to, to help you better able, like if, if you can educate your donors on the true costs of your program, they can better under, understand that you are, as an organization, are using their dollars as effectively as possible. Not as efficiently as possible, but as effectively as possible. Some of these nonprofits are operated by people who are incredibly innovative and terribly scrappy. Now the mm -hmm. chips are down. What clever practices, what new strategies are you hearing about out there? So I used to work for a Jewish youth organization called BBYO. Um, it's a high school youth organization, right? And so high school programming, programming every week or on the weekend, um, really focusing on, on leadership development for teens, camp programs over the summer, weekend retreats and, and leadership and things like that. The through line for all of those programs, in-person, in-person events, gatherings, conclaves, camps, etc. In a matter of about 10 days in March, they switched to a completely online program. Hmm. Um, and they, uh, they created what they call BBY On Demand. It's kind of like Netflix. But they created these programs. And BBY was an international organization. So they actually have programs on at all hours of the day, which is kind of cool. Whether you live somewhere six time zones away or you're just a night owl or whatever it is, you can find something to do. And there are things from how to deal with anti-Semitism to connect four tournaments. Right. And so it's the same. It's a similar variety of programming. It's just all online. Um, and they pulled it together again within like 10 days in March. Um, we also similarly, uh, this is thematic. Uh, there's an, uh, a program called Saturday Night Seder, which took place and it was on YouTube. Um, it was a live event that was or it was a recorded event, sorry, that aired on the fourth night of Passover. Um, and involved a bunch of stars and cameos from people who are Jewish, people who are non-Jewish, but telling the story of Passover. But they did it to raise money for the CDC. Um, I believe it was the the mechanism was the CDC Foundation. But within a, like on the night of and within a few days after, they'd raised something like 1.6 million dollars just by putting together this variety show. Um, and it was, you know, the CDC was all over it in terms of this is who we're donating to. But they partnered with a few. They they partnered with a few key organizations, and they partnered with um, Ben Pasek and and the creative team behind Dear Evan Hansen and and a few other musicals, um, La La Land, etc. Um, to put on the show that you know had a distinct flavor and a distinct audience, but was wide enough and had wide enough appeal that it garnered support for this totally like nonpartisan, non ideological cause, which was the CDC Foundation. Let's talk a bit, uh, just briefly, about federal and state remedies, since you bring up the CDC and that's a government thing. These sure. sort of things vary from place to place, and obviously they might vary in terms of project and resource type. Is there a clearinghouse where I can find out what's available for my <laughs> organization, what I'm eligible to try and apply for? Excellent question. Nonprofit data and data access is always a, a challenge. To the extent that a nonprofit is a small business like any other small business, and a lot of them are, 
um, and are incorporated in, in states and have the paperwork and the status to reflect this. They are, they're eligible for things like PPE. You know, but just like we saw as, as the result of the, the program had been uh, disclosed in terms of who got loans, it was in theory targeted for small businesses, of which nonprofits certainly qualify. Um, but small businesses had a really hard time actually accessing the funds. And one of the challenges is, is that if you are not, like one of the things is you had to have a bank account. If you're a small organization or a grassroots organization and you are not set up in that way, um, and you, again, this comes down to, to sort of back office technological capacities. If you are unbanked, then you're going to have a harder time accessing that program. And a lot of the organizations that are on the ground meeting community needs might be and are those smaller organizations that don't necessarily have uh, the capacity, either technical capacity, sort of organizational or infrastructure capacity, or human resources to spend the time filling out grants or chasing down the paperwork. Um, I do know that the Indie Chamber um, partnered with Charitable Advisors. So Indie Chamber had, through, I believe, the, um, the Chamber of Commerce, had like a Ask the Expert um, uh, portal on their website, and you could send in a, a question, um, and they were working with experts from uh, the Kelly School. And so Charitable Advisors also uh, partnered with the city to have a nonprofit hub for questions as well. That's the closest thing here in Indiana. I believe it's still up. We didn't get a lot of queries for that. I was one of the people sort of on the, the back end helping to facilitate the, the answers to questions we would receive, but it is there. But that was a local solution, right? Local organizations working together, the chamber reaching out to the Kelly School, uh, the chamber and charitable advisors working together, chamber uh, uh, and charitable advisors reaching out to us at O'Neill and, and uh, the Lilly School. Um, so those are sort of ad hoc solutions. It's nice to know that there are options out there beyond the Paycheck Protection Program. I wonder, in a far-reaching crisis of this sort, is this the time, is this a time, when some organizations are reconsidering their efforts, how they do them or what they do wholesale? Perhaps my board or my executive director sees that our mission is changing. Is this a time for that? I, I don't see how it's not a time. Um, on, on the one hand, you have just the very ways in which we typically deliver programs and services challenge, right? How do you deliver in-person services when nobody is coming to your site or whether, or you might be putting people at risk? And again, I don't want to ignore the social context in which we are, we are examining things. I think as a sector, um, whether we're talking about resource providers, whether we're talking about the major funders, the major foundations, um, you know, there's sort of a reckoning, not sort of, I shouldn't use that qualifier. There is a reckoning or should be a reckoning in terms of who the decision makers are on these, let's face it, mostly white boards and who the people that are being impacted are and whether they're actually getting their needs met. We know that there is, there are disproportionate health effects for uh, communities of color, um, for, for black, for Latinx uh, communities. So that's the health issue and then the, the racism and, and social justice aspect as well. So I think these twin, one of those, right, would be uh, reason enough to, to think, are we really meeting people's needs the way that we are supposed to? Are we really on the ground in the communities we purport to be in doing the work we purport to do? And are we doing it well, um, doing it effectively for the needs on the ground? And who is deciding that? Who is deciding how that gets done? So the pandemic or 
these these um, social justice protests on a mass scale. Either one of those, I think, uh, would and should be a cause for reckoning, and they're happening at the same time. Safe to say that we've inspired some people <laughs> in this conversation here. So for those individuals, and we'll assume that all of the standard coronavirus safety considerations about masks and hand washing and social distancing are in place and being observed. For those individuals, though, how best can they get involved if they are now ready to give back in some sort of way? So in some ways, this doesn't change whether you're talking about pandemic or non-pandemic. What are the things you care about, right? What are the things that you're willing to say are important to you? And then figure out where you want to and at what level. So do you want to help on a national scale? Do you want to help on a state level? Do you want to help here um, in in your hometown, whether it's Indianapolis or, or wherever wherever you are located? There are, for, for almost any cause you can think of, there are national and local organizations at various stages. Um, so, for example, if something that you care about is something connected to cancer, let's say, right, you could be talking about organizations that, that help um, fulfill wishes for, for kids who had cancer. You could be talking about national research centers, right? So what do you care about? At what level or what scale do you want to have an impact? Um, and, and sort of at what stage or what aspect of the thing do you want to address? Like if you care about dogs, you want to maybe think about bringing a dog or a cat into your house um, at the local level and visit one of the shelters. Or do you want to donate to, for example, the Humane Society National Organization is an advocacy organization that works on legislation to support animal welfare. So asking yourself those questions is the first step. And again, whether and then, given that we are in a in a pandemic, think about um, what do I feel comfortable doing and committing to. And I think also one thing to to think about is that like give yourself permission to also say. I'm going to try this out. If I need to step it back, I can. Um, you know, some of the work might be easier. than None of this work is easy, but some of us sometimes feel certain work might be easier than, than other work, or some of us can go full steam ahead for a year, and some of us need to take a break, right? And so kind of all those factors are always at play, and some of them are specific to this time that we're in, and some of them are just more generally. You're going to be the best volunteer or the best supporter of an organization if you've thought about it, if it's a match for your interests and your values. Dr. Jamie Levine Daniel is a professor in the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IUPUI. Thank you for sharing your insight with us today. Sure. Thank you for having me. And we thank you for listening as well. For more information, follow us on social media. On Topic with IU is on Twitter and Facebook. And you can subscribe and download this podcast from services like SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, Google Play, Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Just search On Topic with IU on your favorite podcast provider. On social media, be sure to search the hashtag InThisTogether to stay up to date on the broader statewide campaign. For On Topic with IU, I'm Kenny Smith.